everybody. Hi. I'm Alan. And I'm Brent. And guess what? We're back for episode, Brent tells me, 14. 13. 14. 14. I think it's 14. (laughs) Episode 14 of A-B testing. Uh, We had to take, um, we missed a week. You may have noticed. We usually get something out about every two weeks, but with holidays and things, and we had to skip a week. It was kind of a bummer. Yes, it was. But we're back. And uh, I guess we have some things to talk about. So you ready to get started? Yeah, I have one thing that's not on the board. Not on, not on the board. Feature that's creep. Correct. We, we, we have podcast creep. Yes, we do. And that is very recently, uh, my partner in crime has gotten older. So happy belated birthday. And before all of you send him a Twitter, he did not turn 50. In no way, shape, or form should you send him a Twitter congratulating him on turning 50. I did not turn 50. He did not turn 50. I am one year away from AARP. I'm a nice square number. Anyway, Alan, at that. happy birthday, uh, you geezer. That, yeah, I'm, as they say down at the dog park, effing old. All right, what were we going to talk about besides age and forgetfulness? So, um... Microsoft has gotten through just recently a bunch of layoffs without commenting anymore on the good or bad or both of those. Uh, one of our um, – the guy I really respect was – he wasn't – he was given sort of the layoff package where you uh, – here's a couple months to find a job. You're still employed. And he just couldn't find a good fit. And it was tough because he's a really smart, really well-respected guy. And he sent, um, he sent a mail saying uh, two things. I thought it was it's things we've hit on here before. I want to kind of just bring them up again. He said there, uh, I'll paraphrase, a bit, two cultural traits that are holding Microsoft back. He said the first. Holding it, back from what? Uh, making faster progress, making, you know, doing, being as successful as we should be. Okay. Uh, one, I'll go in, in reverse order of his. One is something we talked about um, at least a few podcasts is the not invented here syndrome. And and Brent's team is working on breaking that. Congratulations, Brent. Yes, um, and I, I think that's awesome. I I I my Not team without is, its own trials and tribulations. Yeah, and what was worse, uh, I should come back to not event here, but um, so I will. Okay. Um, the other one was, uh, and I'm sure Brent can relate to this because I certainly can. Is the valuation the uh, the value we put on heroes and individual. Versus team and collaboration. Yep. And something we're trying to break, but it's sort of the the long-standing culture here is, you know, we want, we value the people that come in and stay late and, and fix the bug at the last minute that they created in the first place. Uh, that's one way to put it. <laughs> we value highly... So the one thing that's, that you didn't mention is also uh, the, the evils of command and control. I would add that to, the, to that list. Well, it wasn't in his list, so it, it, uh, it, falls, it falls in there a little bit. I, I, I agree with that, but let's just talk a little bit about those two points. Well, no, so, so right, we have, we have heroism, we have not invented here. Uh, we have command and control, and we also have our review process, and I would argue all of those things work together to increase this behavior. Yeah, I, I think it's a system. That, that, Absolutely. The heroes, why are the heroes coming in and working 
40-hour days over the weekend, <laughs> right? They're, they're doing it because their command and control structure, because they don't have the data, came up with a bad plan, and this guy is coming in and, and saving the day. And why is he doing it? Because he, he perceives he's going to get a, a better review. Likely, likely. Um, I do believe it's a system. And I think I'm sure we've mentioned uh, like all the things that have to change at once to make it to kind of get that culture change to happen. Uh, what do you how, what do you think? How, what what sort of things could Microsoft do to eliminate that value on the hero and put more value on the team? Uh, Peer based reviews. OK, something we talked about. Yep. Good. Yeah, good. We, we spent a good amount of time. Uh, last time, the the one thing though that's that's sticking in my head. Um, so Alan puts together all sorts of uh, uh, presentations. Uh, you're like the chair of Sasquag, right? No, um, I'm. The... And I'll put it out here because I know no Sasquag members are are listening, but I'm looking to kind of back out of that role. Okay. But you currently are. Or no, are. I'm. I'm. I just. Uh, I'm on the steering committee. Okay. That's it. Well, so one I, was it you who put together the the Jim Benson? Yeah, yeah, I put yeah. I, I put together most of the talks. Okay, so one thing that I went to the Jim Benson talk around personal Kanban, which is interesting because yeah. this is under a topic of uh, agile, and one of the things he brought up that has has stuck with me is teams need heroes. Um, teams need those people who are willing to dive in and just get it done through brute force if worse comes to worse. But the difference that he proposes is if you're a hero, that's your job. It's not going above and beyond your job. Your job is to firefight for the team. And so when you, every two weeks, end up spending uh, 40-hour days, well, thank you. And I, I, I right, it's, it's very hand-wavy as a manager. I don't know how I would uh, manage that or, or track how, whether or not my hero on my team is exceeding or, or achieving their job. But I do like that philosophy. I do like that perspective. I have found um, on the Agile process that, that I run, which is sort of a hybrid between um, – Kanban and, and Lean Agile, it's kind of allergic to heroes. The, the team is working together, so kind of heroes get, um, uh, not suppressed, but pushed down in some regard. The, the, the process doesn't like people um, going their own, doing dark matter exercises. It, 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 there's a perspective that the hero on the team ends up being a bottleneck uh, eventually, yeah. Did you ever read uh, the Phoenix Project? No. It's a. Um, it's <laughs> talk about the bottleneckers. I forget the guy's name. I I used to have it memorized for. But anyway, book Phoenix Project. It's uh, theory of constraints. If you ever read the goal, yeah. So it's sort of the goal written as a uh, little novel about this IT shop and. They have this guy who's basically the hero on the team, and he's the bottleneck. He is the constraint. And how do you, you know, what are some things you can do to make it so you don't rely on the hero? And maybe you're right, that's okay. You could have a hero on the team, and it's his job, 
but you don't you can't be a bottleneck you can't rely on him it's like you can't be in a stage where well it's okay that we suck because the hero will bail us out yes and then what happens i think his name may have been brent i gotta think about this <laughs> I, I totally forgotten now it just popped in my head but great book on on figuring out how theory of constraints and 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 heroes uh relate it's is been, really cool it's called the phoenix project it's been a good uh gosh 10 years since i was uh content being a hero on the team and yes i've done my time i'm totally motivated by not just me but the team getting crap done i like seeing progress and it, it, it if for me i don't know when the team does it when there's no heroes i i feel like the team did something when the heroes did all the work i feel like the hero did something i don't know what so it reminds me of a story. Uh, I was one of the last test managers for the, the Zune uh, PC client. What's a Zune? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for, th- for those who, who I think uh, it has remember a Wiki- that from the Windows 7 I, days. I, I think it has a Wikipedia page. People can look it up. Yes, you can. Um, Z-U-N-E. Yes, thank All you. All right, go on. You totally put me in the weeds again. Um, and there was an individual on that team who was sort of an old-school STE. All right. And um, she was a, a, a hero in, in, the, in our vernacular we're talking about today. And it was, it was interesting. At, at Calibration, this individual was someone who I, uh, their manager was saying, uh, Oh my God! All the devs want to work with her. Uh, she finds every single bug possible, uh, and it was someone who was trying to go get into the senior band. And the the challenge I had with that is it, in the senior band, I expect people to to get trained in leadership, be, be right. showing how to help others grow. And this individual wanted nothing to do with that. And uh, it turned out that it, would, it had the cause was uh, there was a fear that if others got taught, then she wouldn't be special anymore. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and there was, she, I, she was I, I have a, a story. very talented tester. I'll share, I'll share a story when you're done. Go okay. on. She was a very talented tester. And one of the problems that I had with, 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 with that approach is, uh, so I, I remember one day I was talking with, with their manager at over, over lunch. And I said, her existence on the team is actually har- um, harming our organization. And he was like, what? She comes and saves the day. I'm like, okay, let me ask you a question. Are you saying that the whole rest of the test team is, is so inept that if she weren't here, we wouldn't deliver the same degree of quality? And he's like, well, well of course we would. Okay, so but we would be late. No, no, we wouldn't be late. And I said, well, what are you talking about? If... What's the difference? Why? What do you? If she, you just got through telling me that she's coming and saving the day, and you also said if she weren't here, um, 
the team would still hit the same dates and the same quality bar. So what's the difference? He's like, oh, well, in that case, if she weren't here, then what we would do is we would train up the rest of the team to be better testers. And I said, how is that anything other than her presence is causing harm? Right? The, the, what had happened is, is that the management had taken the lazy way out, relied on, on the, over-relied on the presence of a hero, and it, was, it had gotten to the point where um, they were a review-based bottleneck. And what I mean by that is, is that there was a huge fear that if, if well, we've got to do everything to make her happy, because if she leaves, our strategy is screwed. Because we didn't invest in the rest of the team, and they're not prepared to to pick up the slack. I think it's uh, really easy, too easy, and for a lot of managers and management teams to put so much emphasis on the product and you know the date and the features that they forget about the team that makes that software. And I, I'm a believer that. A healthy software team makes good software, quality software. Mm-hmm. And dysfunctional ones make good software too. Um, rarely, I think that's uh, I think that's luck when they do that. But, I think I think but it's once luck. They do you'll generally find uh, a twenty to thirty percent attrition after they've shipped? Yeah, that that's great. That's the, great. The, the, the biggest the biggest thing I find that when you when you actually get agile working what ends up happening is people's intrinsic motivation and their extrinsic mm-hmm. motivation like the uh end up being aligned they're one and the same the challenge now is it's sort of the carrot and the stick this is why i'm saying dysfunctional teams will do it because if you don't i'll fire you right okay so i'll get it done but it's way more powerful and It'll go a lot faster if people are doing it because there's some internal uh, motivation uh, that's driving them. I believe that good management and good leadership, especially of a larger team, is this – I call it orchestration because I have this music background. But it's figuring out how to best utilize your generalizing specialists, uh, recognize where your bottlenecks are, and – Actually, that second step is something we, for, we forget about. Maybe step one is, okay, I'm using my team effectively. And I have this hero. They can only do one thing. I got one place to plug them in. And, and then taking a step back and recognizing, the next step is recognize, okay, this person could just do this one thing. I'm sort of bottlenecked to them. How do, I, how do I relieve that? And one thing is to you know, find people that can shadow and learn from them. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the... Whether the woman you're talking about or something, somebody who's here's the only person who knows how to configure our 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 network switch and our data center or whatever, something specific. You know, that's kind of bad. Yeah, the the thing that ended up being super dysfunctional in in that particular team, right? Is the management knew she was a bottleneck and kept on sending people to her yeah. to train. She wouldn't. Yeah, and that reminds, the story I was going to tell earlier is on my very first team at Microsoft, I tested networking on uh, Windows 95. And uh, one of the reasons I got the job was that at my previous company, I was the network administrator. This was in mid-90s. I knew a little bit about NetWare. We had a NetWare server. NetWare's not even around anymore, really, but 
We had a NetWare server. I knew some basic administration. I had to set up some. We had some accounting software that uh, only ran on a NetWare system. So I knew a little bit about it. They needed they needed kind of my match of skills plus some uh, networking and NetWare experience was perfect. We also had a guy on the team who was a NetWare expert. He knew tons about it. And uh, our manager asked us asked him, could you just spend an hour going through this, some details that Alan and this other guy don't know about, just kind of give them a, an overview? And he said, no. And he, he said, why? He says, well, I've, I've taken classes on this stuff, and this is my value to the team. I'm, if they know this, then I'm not as valuable anymore. He actually told the manager that. And then the manager told him, okay. And then two days later, he was gone. He was walked out of the building. <laughs> no, you're wrong. You're not valuable so, now. So, so even then, 20 years ago, uh, it was uh, – I, I guess I have to give some credit to our management chain for saying – all right, you know, we, we do value teamwork to some extent and sharing. <laughs> was that was that guy a full time or or we were but we were all contractors. Oh yeah, uh, my manager wasn't. So my so those of you don't know my history, I started at Microsoft as a contractor um, almost exactly twenty years ago. It was January like fourth, nineteen ninety five, and I was hired full time after five months. So by by June, my twentieth official anniversary is coming up in June. I was twentieth. Yeah, I'll be 20 years at Microsoft in June. My official one's coming up in February. If, um, I didn't realize we were that close. Oh, this February? <laughs> so you, you were hired six months before me? I started at Microsoft in, in Feb of 95. December uh, 94. I w- did six months as an intern, then eight months as a contractor, and then some uh, time. That's weird. That's a weird progression. Yeah, usually, it, usually we hire our interns. We don't put them in the... Uh, the 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 A dash. Have you not heard right. my intern story? Um, did you like intern in marketing or something legal? No. Now what'd so, you do? All right. Once again, A B testing off in the <laughs> weeds, but this is how we get the good stories out of Brent. Yeah. So, I got hired as a uh, as an employee. Okay. Um, guy came to my school, uh, passed the interview, got flow flown up. Um, Went through a whole bunch of interviews in December and um, got the offer, okay? When you come in uh, your first day, you go into this thing called new employee orientation. Mm-hmm. And the the printout they gave you just says new employee orientation. Now, I had – so I came into – a building, uh, it was actually uh, 22, 21, um, came into a building, and the room that it told me to go to was to the right, and there was another new employee orientation to the left. And I was confused, because the room it was sending me to, uh, now on that placard, said, intern or orientation to the right and to the left was full-time and I was confused uh, because that was the first time in the entire cycle so Microsoft was not quite as so you, good so you thought you were coming for I, a job you're coming for an internship yeah and it wasn't <laughs> until the day I was there <laughs> now the thing that was handy is HR was there uh, as well the, their offices were in the same 
ability. And they just laughed at you and said, "Silly boy, no." No, no. So I went, I went, and I went and immediately went and talked to uh, my my HR person because back in those days, HRs uh, people were assigned to people, as opposed to there was like one assigned to a, a group or an organization. So I went and talked to my assignee, and I said. I'm confused. Why is this telling me to go to that room, not the full-time room? And she gave me a well-practiced speech. She um, Back in those days. So they had done this before? <laughs> no, so not this. They, she gave me a well-practiced speech. that, that um, So uh, back in the day, and I think it's still true today, if you come in for an intern, uh, one of the problems were people weren't going back to school. And and Microsoft had a commitment with the school that they would send them back so that they would finish the degree. So she's like, Brent, um, we're not going to offer you a full-time position because we want you to go back and, and, and finish your degree or get your degree. And I had just graduated in December with two degrees. And I said, I... I just got two degrees. How many more do I need? <laughs> and she's like, Oh, well, this is Microsoft. Two's not enough. <laughs> yeah. She said, Brent, you graduated? I'm like, yeah, just a month ago. She's like, you're not even supposed to be here. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'll go to my meeting now. <laughs> so I found out the very first day that I was an intern. Um uh, and that was that was the first time I had ever been made aware of that. <laughs> and um, I went back, uh, talked to my manager, and I'm like, "Hey, what the heck? When does this thing end? I'm moving my uh, my fiance up here in a month, <laughs> right? I thought I had landed a job, not not an internship. And uh, back in those days, they were very flexible, so." Um, uh, you could have an internship, I think, up to nine months. So they extended it as a six-month internship. And then once that was done, uh, the the team uh, suffered. Uh, uh, they ran out of their headcount. So, <laughs> and, and the other we, thing. We never ran out of, that's a line. In those days, we never ran out of headcount. Headcount grew on trees. So the other thing that ended up happening was uh, I learned a new lesson, which was back in those days, if you spent six months as, as, a, as a tester and you didn't know how to test, that immediately damned you. I went through, actually, at that point in time, I went through 14 full-time interviews, and I failed every single one of them because the team... Did, was, you, did you fail a little better each time? I did. All right, good, good. And the team at that time... Uh, the team that I was on, they were actually using interns as even cheaper contractors. And so oh. I then, uh, one of my final full-time interviews, and I, I, I wish I knew who this was, but I had gotten pretty good at reading people's body language. And I, I basically um, said, okay, my last interview. I said, it's clear that I'm not passing this interview. I've gone through a series of these. No one's giving me any feedback. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? And he said, he walked through um, three things, and that those three things um, just snapped my head. I'm like, oh, my God, I totally get this now. 
And after that, I went through a series of contractor interviews, and I, I passed every single one of them. Um, ended up landing an exchange, which ended up being one of the, the best places for me in my career. I wish I could go back and uh, I wish I knew who that guy was, and I could go back and shake his hand and thank him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, funny story that one. But it really, uh, as a manager, it, it wasn't an, after a contractor. I think uh, I was a year and a half before I was a manager. Um, so I started as a contractor, and a year and a half later, I was a manager. And at, from then on out, I was very passionate around how to use interns. I'm like, look, at the end of this internship, whether you not, whether or not you want to come back into a test position, you will know how to do it. <laughs> anyway, that's there's a, that. That's a cool story. Uh, I promise we touch a little bit on, on not invented here even though we've talked about that in the past. And yep. uh, I do see us getting better. Not only is it not invented here, but we'll take like, we might have a Microsoft solution that could work. Said, no, the Microsoft solution doesn't work. We'll, we'll write our own, you know, test harness and, or whatever. And, and for those who aren't clear, we didn't clarify it. Uh, uh, Alan and I are both on the same page that not invented here is awesome. If we can bring a solution that was not invented here and it solves a problem, fantastic. Correct. For those who, who aren't familiar with it or maybe um, uh, just started listening to the podcast, all right, uh, not invented here is, in essence, uh, people rejecting other, other people's tools or solutions that because it wasn't invented here. The typical reason is, oh, if we do that, it'll be much more complex and we'll have to maintain it and that'll be harder or we'll take a dependency in a team and that'll slow us down. Well, let me give you just one quick example then we'll move on. Uh, My team uses Git for source control. One massively huge advantage. It's a learning curve. It's new for a lot of people. But what's great is that so many people use Git is that any question I have, and this has even happened when I've been off in the weeds doing crazy things, uh, Stack Overflow and the internet in general has answers. And when you're using your thing you built, here's another theory of constraints. Using using something that's used widely is is scalable. When only the guy down the hall knows how to use a certain system or tool, he's a bottleneck and you get stuck trying to learn things. And how many times have you used an internal tool for something, you get stuck, you have to ask a question, you don't get an answer... So then you just, okay, no problem. I'll just write my own version of it or I'll fork it. It's, uh, it's just ridiculous. The, the bottleneck theme is coming up a lot. And it occurred to me that when you go with Agile, like one of the biggest things you really need to have is con- or visibility to a concrete team-based goal that individuals – uh, resonate with and they know how to uh, influence it and drive towards it. Um, uh, for example, the Kanban method will use uh, Lytle's Law, Q-theory, and say, hey, um, I- ideally you would have some sort of customer validation, some way to say this is the number of value points that this feature um, realized. But failing that, you can use throughput as a goal, 
uh, and you, you use that as a, as a team-based goal, and you say, how fast are we getting um, tickets to done? Right? And I've been doing this for, for four years now, and all the training with, with Lean, um, it really makes you aware of where bottlenecks are, and it's sort of a mixed emotion because you love to know. It's fantastic when you know where your bottleneck is so you can go squash it because it also makes you hate bottlenecks. So this conversation has reminded me once again of my love for uh, the business fables of Patrick Lencioni. And in one of them, I've read them all. I forget the name. I forget which one's which. But uh, one of the things he talks about, one of the rules, one of the tools I use a lot in when I'm in my own leadership is I believe a team needs a rallying cry, something that that helps them figure out what their focus is. And in the business novel, what he uses is teams in in peril. Like, oh, my God, if we don't get this figured out, we are going to be out of business. They get that rallying cry then, and they rally around it, and either they fail or usually they succeed. They go, it gets the, everybody on one page. And the premise of what Lencioni says is you should have a rallying cry no matter what, something the team can center around. Mm-hmm. And here's a, a, a famous example of that is, uh, I don't know if it was the CEO or, or who it was at Flickr, who said, all right, everybody, we are going to release, a, we're going to be able to release every single day. And, and the team told him, yo, you're crazy. We can't do it. We have for this and this and this. Here's all the reasons it won't work. But that was the rallying cry. People, our goal is we're going to release once a day. And his goal was, if we can just get like once a week, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And they got to once a week. He said he was happy. He said, no, the rallying cry is once a day. We're still working. And they got there. Now they, now they do like twice a day. And it's, it's, it's pretty much continuous. The speed doesn't matter. Don't jump on that part. But the idea is the team together, the organization had a rallying cry they could work around. And I believe that's true for a company. It's true for an organization. It can be true for a team. Here's what we do. Here is the number one thing we, you know, make your decisions based on this rallying cry. Is the work, does the work I'm doing, does the work I'm doing contribute towards this goal, which is so much part of what I think about when I come to work that I can't not think about it. And if it isn't, you know, do I need to do it? Do I need how, how much effort do I need to put into it? But I'm a huge believer in a team having that rallying cry that goal that everyone knows what it is and what it looks like and what how their work every day contributes towards getting there i think it really helps the team i've been on teams that have had i mean i was just thinking through that i've been on teams that have this rallying cry but um there's more to it and i'm trying to think through what what that might be the the you could have this rallying cry but it has to it has to resonate with the troops. It, it has to be something that so the the carrot on the on the stick and the string that's just out of reach versus the one that's a mile away that you feel Well that that's that's the leadership yeah challenge of this. You set a goal that here's what we're gonna do. It has to be attainable. Even if you it has know, to be perceived as attainable. Yeah, and even if you know it's gonna be hard and there's gonna be people that don't believe it's going to be attainable, you have to believe as a leadership team that that goal is attainable. And then you need to live that too. I think one of the best ways to lead a team and to communicate these rallying cries to a team is celebrate examples of it. We cut off two hours off our build time. This is awesome. Let's celebrate this. We're, we're on our way. Let's keep on working. There's, there's, 
I don't know if 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 Reese is the one who started it, but there's a lot of wisdom in in his book when he talks about the one metric that matters because the, the yeah I think it, that, that I, thing I is think, highly related. Yeah. I, I think I, I think one of the issues is I, I think is, that becomes a rallying cry. It does. I think it's exactly the same thing. It, it, I'm thinking in terms of the 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 opposite of the experience when you see teams that have their four-page-long exit criteria filled with numbers. and Right, and it, it becomes diluted. The one thing, the, driving towards the a convergence point, you need a, a few number of things that are actionable and matter. Yeah. So let's move on. Brent, Brent gave me the hand signal that says, let's move on. And, and the, I think we just... Created, surprisingly, the perfect segue. <laughs> Perhaps. And our board says that Brent wants to talk about the difference between bean counting today and yesterday. So bean counting, describe what you mean by bean counting real quick, and then just uh, go on. So I've spent a good portion of my career as a, a test manager right, uh, on, for on-prem products. I'm sure you've you've attended more than your fair share of ship rooms towards the 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 last period of shipping week. The, the love of my life, yes. Yes. Where everybody and their mother presents again these massive spreadsheets of of test pass rates and bug counts. My and, eyes hurt just thinking about it. Yes. Um uh what what this idea came to me is there was a, a individual that I was interacting with over the, the weekend on, on a blog post. And he was talking about um, metrics and statistics and how, how that will, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but how that doesn't eliminate the need for testers. And it real, I realized that there's a huge difference like, I recognized the world he was describing. It was the world that I was, had been in, mm-hmm. gosh, even six years ago. Um, but I wanted to see what you thought in terms of the use of, of metrics today versus yesterday. Would you describe it as, as different? Getting there. Okay. Getting there. What's the and difference? I, th- I think the difference is, and you're going to correct me when I'm done, but in the past, I saw a lot of metrics about measuring the process of making software, uh, bug counts, uh, remaining work items left, a lot about how the process of making the product was going. Um, these days, as we moved more to what we're calling data-driven quality, a lot of the metrics we look at come from how customers use the product. Mm-hmm. So we get an idea of download rates and download success and installs. And thinking back to Xbox, we could see um, what errors people were hitting using which applications. Uh, so that gives us a better insight and sort of not an entire insight, but a better insight into what was happening with customers in the field. Help us identify real hotspots. Uh, and we all know that as on engineering teams, we have found bugs that no customers really would never find. We fix them because it's a bug, mm-hmm. or we don't. And then, as much as we do, customers will find bugs that we never found. 
Oh, oops, sorry. Missed that. Uh, so I think using the data from actual customers helps us a lot in getting in that direction. Part of his article was talking about, uh, again, that stats can't replace testers. They can't. Why not? I, I think there are some things, uh, well, a lot of it depends on context. Um, I think, you know, when I look at what testers do, I don't, stats can replace, well, I could go off in the weeds here. But I think some of the things that testers or test specialists on a, as I prefer to think about it, um, some things about looking at performance and reliability and some of those uh, more complex, non-functional attributes of the software, uh, even before it's in customers' hands, um, are a valuable thing for a tester to do. And also looking at things end-to-end to anticipate some of the problems customers might run into. I think while it's okay for you to use, and I've, I've preached this in the past, that, hey, let's just let customers find these issues and as long as we can fix them quickly. But I do think there's value in having your software good enough in the first place where people will come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to require some testing or test special, specialization up front. Yeah, the, the, I agree with that. The, the biggest difference, though, that I, that I walked away with is <clears throat> statistics to me now means something different than it did 10 years ago. 10 years ago when I was publishing this this stupid spreadsheet and I've 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 spent hours producing these stupid things. Um versus my view on it now is is fundamentally different. Like you and I have both been proponents of shifting um Reducing the headcount on uh, tester specialists, yeah, right, towards more of a of a data centric culture, mm-hmm. and um, to me, the reason why I'm a big proponent of it is because I now have a more of a data sciency view on on what statistics mean and how they should be used and how to use them correctly. Whereas before, I would go, we're at 97% pass rate, and we need to be at 100. We can't ship till we're at 100, and all the bugs are fixed. Or you turn those tests off. Right. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, Don't do that. <laughs> the, <clears throat> my point is, is I think um, if we're going to drive towards data-driven quality, right, view statistics as as a means, it's still not the ends. And that there's all alternate, we've talked about this a bajillion times before, right? Uh, exposure control. If you just did statistics, if the only thing you changed was you got rid of testers and you added statistics, uh, I will not work on that team. <laughs> because they're, um, they're not necessarily using the stats the the way they need to be in terms of driving towards the goal of creating quality and if you realize that your goal is 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 quality and then you have um one or two metrics that matter then it's going to force you into alternatives for dealing with risk that we used to solve with an army of testers Mm -hmm. and just that whole talk just reminded me that 
so many and so many attempts at organizational change or change or you know restructuring of a team fail to look at the whole system of things that need to change. How many teams do you know that said, okay, we're going to do agile, so we're doing Scrum? Like well, there's there's more there's m- 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 more yeah. to think about. <laughs> the problem is, is that the leaders that do that then go, but not Scrum, Scrum. We yeah. read, we read the first chapter and yeah, we we recognize it either won't fit or we're really smart and we're gonna tweak it. Yeah. All um, right. So I think before we're out of time, we should go on to the mailbag. Okay, Brent, what do you got today in the mailbag? That was pretty good. Uh, the, you, reach, your, reach your hand deep in the mailbag. It's, it's not uh, in the diaphragm. Well, I had, to, I had to stick my head into the bathroom let the echo happen, but it was. Uh, I'm back now. All right, so uh, I, got a, I got a comment on one of my blog posts over the, over the um, last week. Alan, you have more exposure to this, so I'm going to shoot this question out to you. So... Uh, this was in my blog post around shifting the tester mindset, if, if you recall that one, where how very aligned with what we're talking about. I don't about. remember what I had for dinner last night. but anyway. Yeah. It was very around how we could take these testers and turn them into more quality-oriented, um, yes. add reactivity to their regimen. I do recall. And the, the, the individual called out that uh, large companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft – Right? They have all these resources, and they could potentially get away with um, removing testers. But smaller companies still need them. And, and he, he mentioned this term of PM-focused testers, it, it, which resonates to me as sort of a combining the PM role and the tester role into a single individual. Sounds like a generalizing specialist to me. Go on. And then um, I'm going to add a third uh, characteristic because he talked about small companies. I'm going to add uh, just a pure startup and go, what do you th- think about that? Do, do you think that there are, in terms of the needs for for having testers, does it differ based off the, the type of company you are? I don't think so. When I think of, you know, our small, our, our Microsoft small team is a huge huge company to anybody else um, at about 200 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely need test specialists. I think you know, at, at that size, we do rely a lot on data, but we do need people thinking about those non-functional things and end-to-end and how things work. We need that test specialization. On the other end, if I think of a five-person startup, uh, let's go with five. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good small size. Would you have one of those people dedicated to testing? No. I don't think you could afford that. Do you need someone that kind of – and it doesn't have to be a – when I think of a tester, I think of that tester mindset, that systems thinker, the big picture thinker, knows how the pieces fit together. Often it's the architect. You know, one of the best test-minded people – actually, several of the best test-minded people I've known in my life are dev architects. Mm-hmm. They know how all the pieces fit together. They go, well, that's going to cause a problem there, and, and these things aren't going to go together. Again, going back to generalizing specialists, I think on a team of five people, you definitely need – it can't just be all people that know how to write code and write unit tests for it. I think you need somebody who kind of thinks big picture and can figure out how those pieces fit together. So the, that's the long version of my answer is, yeah, I, I think it's the same from a startup to a large company. You need 
people that kind of you don't need you don't need one tester for every developer certainly which Microsoft had in the past but you need people with that traditional test mindset as part of their toolbox on any size team the thing that that so he, this individual explicitly called out uh sort of evaluation of the user experience, which I don't know if this is what they meant, but it resonated with me, uh, sort of the old school STEs. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I found interesting is he kind of called out that his view was smaller companies, because they're resource, resource poor, have a stronger reliance on these type of testers. And um, it, that resonated with me as just wrong. Right, because in the larger company, the the problem you have there is that you have this pain in the ass bureaucracy you're, you're dealing with. You have this huge command and control. It's a lot easier to remove my belief. It's a lot easier to remove command and control from smaller teams. Can't have it there. Just think for a minute. So I'm in charge. I'm this, I got this five person startup. We're making something you know super cool. Uh, if it's Actually, if I'm a five-person startup today, I'm not making um, – I'm making a, some sort of app or web service. I may have okay, architects, help me take big picture. We're going to invite – if I want to evaluate that user experience and that five-person company, probably going to do a friends and family. We're going to take their feedback seriously. You guys try this out. Is this working? Do these scenarios, et cetera? I might sort of crowdsource this amongst – the same way we do at Microsoft these or a lot of companies these – concentric circles of deployment, you know, 1%, 5%, 20%. I might do friends and family, okay, invited beta. Okay, you guys try it. We're going to get feedback. We're going to incorporate it. So by the time it gets to any substantial amount of people or press, mm -hmm. that the, the user experience has been evaluated by users. Mm -hmm. I think there is no better person, and and I'm sorry, testers, who your your personal rallying cry is to uh, to be the customer is you're not the customer. And the best person to evaluate really what that customer experience truly is, is the customer. Mm -hmm. So the, the, better, the better you can get at finding a way to get the customers to do those things in a way that's not damning for your product or effective. You just roll this thing out to a million people and go, it's done. Better you're going to be. I think that's going to be part of your business plan in a small startup. Have you read Steve Rose's uh, blog on this topic? I have read Steve Rose's blogs on this topic. Where he was talking about one of the problems when – that he noticed is when we have these these um, teams of specialists called testers, is they believe they're advocating for the customer, but what they're striving towards is proving that the product matches the spec that PM wrote. They're driving towards the requirements, right? Not That's, necessarily what the customer actually yeah, wants. That doesn't actually work. Yeah. All right. Um, we are out of time. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thanks. Uh, keep your questions coming, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, another installment. Yes, 15, right. 16, or one of those numbers. All right, he's Brent. I'm <laughs> I knew I not screwed. Alan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>